The best capital gains exemption is never selling it, having somebody else inherit the property. For those who don't know, upon inheritance, the basis for taxation steps up to the current market value. So whatever tax liability the, the owner sort of banked in their lifetime is erased unless you're you're married, you get like 20 odd million dollars in, in, in tax, you know, estate tax exemption. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is David Friedman from Knox Financial. And today we're learning about how his company helps people turn their primary residences into rental properties and also helps them buy the next primary residence and just keep moving forward. There are a lot of potential stumbling blocks that people run into that cause them to say, hey, I need to sell the property in order to buy the next one. And he has created some unique and novel products and services that are helping people turn their primary residences into rental properties and get rid of some of those speed bumps in the way. Very interesting and new products that are new to the industry. So great conversation. And hey, maybe this is of interest to you. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus on commercial multifamily and self-storage properties. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and I'll look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much, you guys. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. People see your ratings and reviews and they say, hey, this person learned something from the show. Maybe I can learn something too. And you know what? I see your ratings and reviews and that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling every single time because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. If you're not already watching us on YouTube, check it out. We put the videos on YouTube so that you can join us there and uh, get the, the video aspect of the interview, which, you know, maybe you're into. I don't know. But check us out on YouTube as well. Once again, our guest today is David Friedman from Knox Financial. Here we go. David, thanks so much for joining us today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you, your background, and what Knox Financial does, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your business? Sure. So I am a father of three. I'm a big outdoorsman, skier, cyclist, hiker. I like to swing a hammer. I was a carpenter in my formative years and originally from New York, and I live in the Boston area. I spend a lot of time in Vermont, though, where we have a country home. And in my career, I've been in fintech and real estate technology for the last almost 20 years. Awesome. Great. And that's an interesting industry. So let's dig into Knox Financial and what you guys do, because it's an interesting concept I think folks will be interested in. Yeah. Happy to get into it. So I always like to tell the founding story of Knox because a lot of people can relate to it. I came to a point in life where I got engaged and I'd been living in my two bed, one bath, 20s bachelor pad condo for about a decade. <laughs> and um, my wife and I realized we had too much stuff to fit in her place or my place. We needed to buy a bigger place. So we did. And I went to put that home, which had a ton of great memories in it on the market and talked to my realtor. And he said, you know, you, you've made about a quarter million dollars in profit on this place when we list it in 10 years. And it's a ton of money. That was a lot of, that was, that was like, the, that was at the time, the best investment I'd ever made. And that said, I was like, why am I selling this place? This 
this has been the best investment I've ever made. And I have every bit of confidence it's only going to continue to go up in value. Why am I selling it just because I'm moving? And at a time I was running a real estate technology company selling software to real estate brokerage brokerages. And I so I was like, okay, I know how to do this. I can rent this place out. I know how to do the maintenance generally on my own. Probably need to open up a new bank account, probably get a separate credit card, separate my finances, probably refi to get some of my cash out, a new insurance policy. And all that just gave me a headache. And I said, all right, making this transaction work, I could do it. I don't have the time. I, I threw my hands up and I sold it. Well, four years later, Zillow sent me this incredibly evil, evil email that told me the home had sold again. And in that four-year period, the new owners had made another $200,000. <laughs> and so I kicked myself for this. And I, I went and told this as sort of a self-deprecating joke to all sorts of friends and acquaintances. And they all said, you know, Dave, the same thing happened to me. I cringe when I Zillow the first home I ever owned. And it sort of dawned on me and, and, a, and some other people like, this is the rule. We went and did a regression study. We found out that for the vast majority of homeowners, when they move out of the home that they've been living in, they have one of the best investment opportunities of their lifetime, that those properties not only perform well, but they outperform the S&P by multiples. And the vast majority of those folks, when they move, have more than enough equity in their home to uh, keep it and make the down payment on their new home. They just can't make the whole transaction work. And so Knox, our mission is to make that transaction possible and turn those homes into passive investments on a long-term basis while still making sure they can buy the next home they want to move into with their family. Awesome. It's it's funny you say when you got engaged, you were living in a two-bed, one-bath pad condo. I'm actually exactly the same. She was living, we were living in my bachelor pad at the time and finally sold and upgraded, but we did make a pretty considerable amount of appreciation on the place and you know, fortunate timing in the market, bought it really cheap, all that kind of a thing. It would have been interesting to hang on to it. I made made the decision to cash in on the appreciation and move forward. But hey, maybe if this tool, I'd known about this tool, maybe I would have hung on to it. So let's dig into how you actually facilitate that transaction because it, it gets a sounds like it gets more into the weeds because a lot of folks are going to sell their home because maybe they need to pull the capital out to go buy the new home or you know, maybe want to redeploy it in some way. So let's dig into to how you come into play. Sure. So there's several pieces to it. First is the financing. So we have created a lending product we call a Keep Loan, which is sort of like a twist on a home equity line of credit where we can get you access to the capital in your home to work as the down payment on the home you're going to buy. Now, your other alternative is to have a lot of forethought and refi or much earlier. If you are about to move out, you cannot get a conventional loan against the home you're about to move out of. Banks won't write that loan. So we will. We've created that unique mortgage product. Uh, the next is getting qualified for the mortgage on your Next home, we do broker that mortgage as well, if you'd like. Part of that qualification often is proving that you will or, or have already rented out the home moving out of. As the bank looks at your income and your debt obligations, they say, okay, how do you have the income to carry your mortgages? So we actually can sign a, a lease with you for the home. So you can go to the bank and say, hey, look, my costs are offset by this lease I have in hand. So Knox is basically leasing it from you ahead of you moving out and placing a tenant. So that's the financing picture. That That's a mixture of those sort of three pieces, two being loans and one being a, a master and sublease product. Then you need the right insurance, right? So we, we also find you the right insurance policy and we place a tenant. We take over the maintenance and the, the rent collection. And once that tenant moves in, you step back and we send you the net profits and life gets easy. Nice. So I think one of the things that we may deal with economically over the next few years, in addition to just rising rates in general, but in the housing market in particular, 
We have a lot of folks who recently bought houses for historically low interest rates, which it seems like we've been saying that for the last decade, historically low interest rates. But throughout the pandemic, I mean, they were rock bottom interest rates, you know, almost free money. And people might look at those loans and say, I don't know if I really want to refi out of this, you know, a few years down the road, if we're just, you know, roughly where we are right now, right? Hey, maybe I got a loan for two and a half percent. Why am I going to refi out of this? What are your thoughts about that and and where we're going to kind of wind up on that? Yeah. So those low interest rate mortgages are amazing assets. So when people move, the opportunity to hold on to that cheap money is the core of an amazing investment opportunity. So if you refied or bought a home with a two and a half percent mortgage and you move, you know, you did that two, three years ago and now you're moving this year or next year, you're going to realize, oh, geez, I've got all this nice leverage at this low rate and now I'm about to pick up more leverage at this high rate. How do I, how do I keep on holding on to that? Especially as, as rents are going up and interest rates are high, it's a really nice inflation hedge, right? So, and by the way, probably since you did that refi or since you got that mortgage, the value has gone up. So you've got some equity there. So what you're going to want to look to do is keep that primary mortgage and then have a second mortgage or a home equity line of credit in a second lien position. And that's what we're offering to free up that capital. One of the things that stops a lot of people from buying investment property or for that matter, cause them to sell it is they want liquidity. And it's been very hard historically to get liquidity without a refi on an investment property. And so the keep loan really creates more optionality than has ever been available before. Cool. Okay. So with any loan, right, there's the conversation around rate, fees, amortization, any balloons, anything like that. So what does that end up looking like for you? So it's a variable rate. It has a, it's interest only for the first 10 years, which on a cash flow on an, on an investment property is really important. And then it has a 15 year amortization period. Highly likely people are going to refi out of these before 10 years comes up, which is pretty normal in your HELOC space, actually pretty much in your, in your mortgage space. And we have a rate table based on loan to value. We can go all the way up to 90% loan to value and credit. So um, you're usually going to pay a couple points higher than you would have paid for the, the primary loan on that investment property. Okay. Okay. Makes sense. So you also had mentioned the, that you find tenants and take care of the maintenance and that kind of a thing. And you know, just walk us through that process and qualifying the, the tenants and what the property owner's like role is in that yeah. process. Uh, the property owner's role is incredibly passive is the, is the answer to that. So we have a few options on, on leasing. Uh, the first, as I just mentioned, we can sign a lease with you where we're the, we hold a master lease and then have a sublease right. And that gives you that lease to go right to the bank right now, close on the purchase of your home, even before a tenant has been identified. And that, that we, we call that a certainty lease. And so you really have certainty of my income will be this amount starting on this date. Banks want to see those leases start usually no more than about 60 days after the closing on the, the new purchase. So we will actually, we use data to say, Hey, this is what we, this is what we can do on a master lease. And then we're going to go sublet, sublease it out probably for a little bit more right? Because we're taking some risk on that. We have another leasing option where we go to the market, we find a, a tenant and whatever they sign a lease for, we will guarantee 12 months of that lease for 95 cents on the dollar. So if you've got a $4,000 a month lease for $3,800 a month, you're, you're guaranteed rent on the first of the month, again, coming from Knox, not from the tenant, and then everything else is on us. Or you want to keep 100 cents on the dollar, we'll, we can just do the leasing at whatever the market says. And it can be, you know, you, you can get maximum revenue, but take on a little bit more risk if you want. In all cases, we're doing 
all the things you do to check the box and do it right. We take professional photography. We list it everywhere under the sun, take in applications, do tours, deep background checks, et cetera. We have very thorough leasing leases, like the paperwork, et cetera. And then we manage the move in, move out, maintenance, et cetera. Cool. Okay. So when you're, uh, when you own a home and live in it, right, there's almost a hundred percent chance that you own that home in your own name and not under like an LLC or something along those lines. But when you rent property, it's kind of nice to have those things in an LLC that doesn't perfectly protect you from liability or anything like that, but it's an additional layer and privacy and all those kinds of things. What are your thoughts around whether folks should look at transferring those properties into LLCs? Does it make sense? There's also umbrella insurance is available that a lot of folks kind of stick with when they have one or two rental properties. What do you think? So I like umbrella a lot. We offer that. So we, we, we also, like I said, find the right insurance policy for folks. The question of LLC has a lot to do with the rest of your assets, in my view. So if you have the home wrapped in an LLC and, and you get sued, they can, they sue the LLC, right? So the assets of the LLC are all that could be awarded in the extremely unlikely event of a judgment against you, right? You'd have to be like negligent, right? But even still, if that happened, it would be just the assets in that LLC, which would be your your, your potential loss. If you have significant additional assets, if you own 10 investment properties, if you have a large stock portfolio, if you, I don't know, have a lot of gold bars sitting under your bed, something like that, it's a, it's a good idea to add that layer of protection. It's not a crazy amount of cost up front. Usually there's some annual fee for maintaining the LLC, but you know, for a few hundred bucks a year is maybe, you know, something probably less than between 500 to a thousand bucks. It's a nice little insurance policy. If you do uh, have other assets, I, I often say like the older someone is, the more important it is because they probably saved up and have some kind of a retirement account somewhere. If you don't, a lot of our clients are retiring, actually, and their vast majority of their wealth is in their home. It's probably not as necessary for those individuals. Okay, that makes sense. And then when you start talking about that, especially with the primary residence, the conversation always comes up about, hey, is the bank maybe going to call my loan? You know, the due on transfer clause thing that's that's in these loans. But the folks in the space who I've spoken with say they pretty much have never seen yeah. bank call a loan for that. But what do you think about that? So I've never seen it. No one's ever told me they've seen it. But here, here's why you don't. I think you don't see it. This is David Friedman's view. When you get into the, the mortgage marketplace, what you realize is that the value of a mortgage is based on it going, it being paid every month for a very long time. All right. So most mortgages get traded after they're written, some institutions hold them, but most banks sell them. And certainly all your, 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 you know, your pure mortgage companies sell them right on. Right. And now you, now somebody has paid more than the principal, the, the outstanding balance on that loan when they bought it. Right. So to call the loan is to say, Hey, pay us the outstanding balance today, even though we paid say 110 or 115 cents on the dollar for it. So there's a disincentive for the, 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 the owner of the note to go and look through their portfolio and, and figure out who's still living in those homes because they literally be devaluing their own portfolio. What they care more about is that the loans are performing, that the checks are showing up every month, the payments are showing up. And um, finally, most of those owners don't even do any of that. There's servicers involved. So you've got these big servicers and every month, they, you know, you're actually interacting with the servicer who then you know, does all the money movement. So, and so the, the folks who actually own the loans are very small shops for the amount of money they're managing. And the idea that they would go and look through millions of loans, 
to decide whether or not owners are still occupying them, even though they're making their payment every month, it's an unlikely. Okay. That digs into the inner workings. And I think that logic checks out and, and, and makes sense. It's a possibility, but as long as you're paying the mortgage on time in full, then I mean, it's probably yeah, not you, gonna happen. Well, I, this is a topic I actually really enjoy because there's a lot that doesn't make sense in the mortgage marketplace. <laughs> I'll give you another example. Like, so owner occupancy is one thing that, you know, that's a that's that's one issue. But at the moment a loan is written, there's a snapshot in time, right? So there's the owner's credit, there's the loan to value, there's the owner's debt to income ratio, there's the appraisal of the property. And none of that is being requalified after the loan is is underwritten. So you you could look at any number of really important factors. Like if you looked at a, a portfolio of loans, could you, I mean, you, can, you cannot do this, but wouldn't it not behoove you to rerun the credit on every borrower? Makes sense. Yeah. Without, yeah. You can't do that without their consent. But if like the credit has generally fallen or what about the loan to value ratio? This was like marketing to market, which people talked about in the last financial crisis. If suddenly all those mortgages are underwater, but everybody's paying their mortgage, do you really care? Probably not. I mean, a bean counter is going to care, right? But if if they're still paying, yeah, but you worry about your potential downside in you that sure case. Do. Sure you do, right? So you would, and but there's no bean counter doing that. Nobody's being high <laughs> to go and look through a portfolio of you know, tens of thousands of loans and decide whether or not those loans would be written today when they were all properly underwritten five or 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. So one of the sticking points that I would imagine kind of comes up, especially when you're talking about properties that are kind of heavily appreciated, is for owner occupants, there are some pretty sweet capital gains tax incentives to you know basically sell your property, right? You get the capital gains tax exclusion, but that is capped and everything. And there are you know terms and conditions definitely apply. But what are your thoughts on that? Because if you're holding on to the property, taking out additional debt and whatever, then you don't get that capital gains tax exemption because you're not selling and you might run out the clock on the exemption. What do you think? The best capital gains exemption is never selling it, having somebody else inherit the property. For those who don't know, upon inheritance, the basis for taxation steps up to the current market value. So whatever tax liability the the owner sort of banked in their lifetime is erased unless you're if you're married, you get like 20 odd million dollars in, in, in tax, you know, estate tax exemption. The other interesting tax opportunity is to depreciate the cost basis on the asset. So you can actually take tax advantages. If you have some income, you can offset other income. Certainly the net income on the, on the property itself can be close to tax free if you depreciate your cost basis. So there's a lot of tax uh, advantages to owning investment property and, uh, Playing the game appropriately is important. The other thing you can do is you hold on it for a while, then you 1031 it into something else, right? So people who play the tax strategy game well, really profit. Yeah. The the story goes on basically from a, a tax standpoint. There are other right. things involved. Now I'd like to learn a little bit about just the growth of your company. I mean, you guys are growing very quickly, getting recognized by major publications. I'd just like to learn more about that process of, of kind of starting the company and growing and getting recognized, recognized and how that all has, has worked. So, you know, tell us about that and the growth of your company. Sure. So we, we found a Knox, uh, well, we launched the product back in 2018 and we just launched it in the Boston area and, and we, we got some initial traction. Then we, we raised some venture capital and kept growing. We've, we've since raised more, but we've also launched in three cities in Texas, Houston, Dallas, and Austin, and in Atlanta, Georgia. And with that growth, we not only expanded geographically, but into new product lines. So 
originally launched, we were sort of doing just the wealth advisory that we do, the, the property wealth advisory insurance, and sort of making the transaction work without the financing, without the master and sublease. And what we've added in the last, say, year to 18 months is that unique financing product, the mortgage product, and, and the uh, the least certainty products. So in doing all of that, we've really, we feel like we've checked all the boxes. We like day one had this vision and we, we slowly built out all those pieces and, and built out the team to make it so we can ask a client, okay, what are your financial goals? What are the re- financial realities? And what pieces do we have or components do we have to pull off the shelf to make the transaction work for you? Which is what any good financial institution does. They have a suite of products and services. And based on the client's financial goals and needs, they're going to recommend the, the the best tools available. Okay. Makes sense. Do you, so since you have that long-term relationship with your clients managing their properties and all that kind of a thing, do you have like a back end when they are ready to sell or when it gets to that point, because you mentioned the 1031 exchange possibility, when they get to that point, you know, are you helping them through that? Have you kind of gotten to that point, right? You're starting yeah. all these new products. What, what, what are you doing there? So even though we encourage people to hold for the very long term, if somebody does need to sell, we will sell that property for them. Okay. Are there any, when you, when you mentioned 1031, there's the qualified interme- intermediary and everything. I'm just thinking that, are you participating on the back end in that regard in any way? Or is it thought about that? We are not doing the 1031 exchange. There's companies that focus on that. It's, it's not our business. We're ju- we simply, we own a brokerage, right? So that brokerage does two things. It leases out property that's on the platform. And sometimes we help people sell when they want to leave the platform. Cool. Okay. Well, all I'm, all I'm saying, all I'm getting at here is there may be QIs out there willing to pay you for those leads. So that's, that's all, that's my only thought there. Not a lot of, we're not selling any leads. That's, that's not part of our business model right now at all. I, I, hey, I'm just, just a thought, just something to think yeah, about. Fair enough. I appreciate that. Just trying to help you out. So, okay, great. Right now we're going to take, take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, David, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yes. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? To date, the best investment I ever made was starting my last company. It was called Boston Logic and later became known as Property Base. We made software for the real estate brokerage world. I grew that over a a 13-year period and we had a really successful sale to a large private equity firm. It wasn't necessarily my, it was my time and, you know, my money and the fact that I didn't take much salary for the first decade or so. What's it with my sweat equity investment? But um, uh, it really brought me the financial position I'm in today, that and my income and my wife's income. I think that the the best investments anyone can make are building a business. And whether that business is owning property or or, or actually like creating a company, building and owning a business is, is the true path to wealth. Nice. Nice. Yes. Works out for, for a lot of people who create some immense wealth. So we had your best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? What is the worst? You know, I, the investment that kills me, is it the worst investment I ever made? I, maybe not, but the one that comes to mind, I bought this this stock at, at the IPO 
And I really had a lot of faith in, in, in this uh, company. And um, at the time, and to this day, I always put a stop loss order in. So whenever I, if I, I don't make a lot of my own investment decisions, but if I have a hunch, I generally put in a sell order at some basement, like 10% off, or at that time it was 10%. But it was a time when the, the VIX, the volatility index was really high. And sure enough, within like three weeks, it auto-traded out. The company that went about, you know, 5Xing over the next 18 months share price. So while I lost 10%, I could have made, you know, 500% if I had made that sell order, you know, if I had made it a 20% stop loss order, which is now my new rule. Like that, that was the mistake that taught me the lesson. So it was, I don't know if it was my worst investment ever. I, I did, when the market was falling in the early part of the pandemic, I bought some puts that, uh, you know, I shorted the market and I thought the market was going to fall farther than it did. And those went to zero. So th- those are probably on a, on a, ROI basis, the worst investments I ever made. Yeah, well, who could have known that the Fed was going to turn up the money printers and whatever, quadruple the overall money supply out there in the world. But hey, you know, kill yeah. on central bankers. Well, my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? I think those business and investing are very different, but the most important thing is <laughs> it's all about people. So if you choose the right people and you compose your team and, and and how you structure that team, not just the humans on it, but how they work together. That is the most important part of business uh, every day and focusing on the humans around you and then giving them the tools they need to be successful. That That's the most important part of business. I think the, the most important investing things I've learned is that patience is generally the biggest risk mitigator out there. So, you know, there's lots of people who, uh, let's use properties and be talking about it, who found themselves underwater in the last recession. And as soon as they could sell their homes, they did. Well, almost all of those homes are now worth huge gains. Mm-hmm. And so the ability to be patient with investments, you, you, you might buy a, a security, you think it's going to go up 25% in the next six months. It goes down 10%. <laughs> I just tell the story, you know, patient. <laughs> With something, you know, and with your convictions in lots of investments is a virtue. Nice. Yeah. Have a eye on the long term and remain patient. I like that. Well, David, thanks so much for joining us today and teaching us about your company and how you're helping people turn their primary residences into rental properties and then get into their next primary residence. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to find your company or anything like that, where can they track you down? Uh, Knox, K-N-O-X, financial.com. Great. All right. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye. Bye.